Welcome back to the Mongol Empire podcast. This is episode 3.9 of the Rise of Temujin, and I am Cory. I want to start today by saying a big hello to everyone who has recently tuned into the podcast, and a thank you to those who have been with me since the beginning and the restart last October. The recent large uptick in listeners is incredibly motivating, and I really hope that I can continue to keep putting out interesting episodes for you all to enjoy. So, in the last episode, we looked at the fallout from the Battle of Kalakaljid Sands, focusing on how the Mongol leader regrouped his forces, threatened his enemies, and then honoured the warriors who had stood by him at the battle. You may have noticed that between episode 3.8 and this one, I managed to slip out a supplementary episode about the participants of the Baljuna Covenant. If you haven't listened to it yet, go and do so, and learn a little bit more about the men who shared Temujin's hardship. Today, we finally leave Kalakaljid behind, which is a little bit of a shame, because it is a fun word to say. But to do so, we must first return to one of the participants in the Covenant. The appearance of Kassar at Baljuna presented Temujin with an opportunity to strike back at Onkan and Jamuga. As I discussed in the supplementary episode, Kassar was one of many people affected by the split between Temujin and Togrul, and he and his family found themselves on the wrong side of the divide. There are a couple of versions of his story. The first we find in the secret history, which describes how Kassar's wife and children were trapped in the Koreid camp, but Kassar himself took an opportunity to escape and tracked Temujin down at Baljuna. The second version, found in Rashid al-Din, states that Kassar's family were living independently from both the Koreid and Temujin, but were taken captive by Onkan. Kassar evaded capture, wandered around the steppe for days, before he joined up with his brother. Both sources state that the brothers devised a plan in which two followers of Kassar, well known to the Kraid, would return to Onkan, stating that Kassar had been unable to locate Temujin, and now wished to return to his family. Kassar only hadn't yet because he was afraid of Togrul's reaction to his desertion. The Mongol army would follow up these messengers, and launch a surprise attack on the Koreid, hopefully overwhelming them and defeating them. If we were to take the secret history at face value, then this happened straight after Temujin moved his army to Baljuna. However, Rashid al-Din provides a bit more of a structured timeline, which actually makes some kind of sense, so we'll follow that. According to the Jami al-Tarawik, the whole of 1203 was spent dealing with the repercussions of the breakdown of the relationship between Temujin and Onkan. The Battle of Kalakaljid Sands had taken place in the spring, whilst Temujin's response didn't come until the autumn. That gave the Mongol leader roughly six months or so to prepare his army, fatten his horses, and plan his revenge. In the interim, the alliance between Jamuga and Onkan crumbled. Rashid al-Din reports that Ultan, Kuchar, and Jamuga formed a new alliance between themselves and attempted to seize control of the Koreid from Togrul. Joining them was Daratai, who it seems had defected to the Koreid prior to Kalakaljid. As was tradition at this point, they decided to launch a surprise attack, 
but their gathering and their plans were once again betrayed and Onkon mounted his own surprise attack, which surprised the surprises, put an end to their surprise and to their alliance. The conspirators went their separate ways. Garatai returned to Temujin, and as a way of an apology took with him the Niran and Sakayat clans, as well as some Karaid. This substantial offering of submission may have saved Daratai's life. After a succession of poor decisions, which included openly disobeying the instructions of his Khan, Rashid al-Din states that Daratai had learned his lesson. He became obedient to Genghis Khan and joined him. Daratai's defection may have been particularly useful to Temujin. Not only did it provide him with more warriors, it may also have revealed the collapse of the coalition against him. Whilst Daratai had learned his lesson, Ultan and Kuchar had not. They took their people to join the Neyman. And as for Jamuga, well, Rashid doesn't mention where he disappears to, but we can assume that he took the Jadran off somewhere safe again to plot his next move. Although at this point, he is running out of potential allies. By autumn then, Temujin had his army and his plans in place, and had moved away from Baljuna to the Onan River. Having started the year as a victim of a surprise attack, there was a real possibility that he could end the year as leader of the Karaid tribe. Not a bad turnaround if it could be pulled off. The plan relied on taking advantage of Onkan's warm feelings for Temujin and his family. It was arranged that two of Kassar's liegemen would take a message to Togril. Quote, Go speak to my father the Khan and tell him we bring a message from Kassar. Say to him, Kassar sent us to tell you. I went off in search of my elder brother. Though I followed his tracks, I couldn't find where he'd gone. Though I shouted his name, he couldn't hear my voice calling. My wife and sons are with my father the Khan. If you promise me safe passage... I'll return to the camp of my father, the Khan. End quote. Rashid al-Din tells a slightly different story, where Kassar admits to finding and joining Temujin, but has grown quite sick of the high and mighty way the Mongol Khan acts. Quote, I have had enough of my elder brother. Who can stand to see his retinue? As much as I have wanted to find a way out, I haven't been able to. I place my reliance on the Khan, my father, and am sending these messengers in secret to him to ask for my clan, soldiers, wife, and child. When I reach my family, I will surrender and be obedient and enter with correct heart. End quote. If we are working on the assumption that there is a six-month gap between Baljuna and this point, then Rashid al-Din's version again makes more sense. But in whichever version we follow, the messengers were nothing more than a lure. Temujin's army shadowed them, setting up an advance camp on the Kaluran River. Here he waited for Onkan's response. And Togrul responded exactly as Temujin had hoped. In both sources, Onkan recognised the men sent to him as being loyal to Kassar, and was delighted to bring the Mongol back into his camp. Togrul sent the two messengers back with a third man who he knew Kassar trusted, and would provide the requested guarantees of safety. The man's name was Iturgen, and we'll let the secret history pick up the story. Quote, so they rode off to find Kassar, until they approached Arkul Gergi, 
and there they saw the great army assembled. When Eturgen saw the army, he tried to ride back. Caligudar's horse was faster and overtook him, but Caligudar didn't have the courage to capture Eturgen. He only blocked Eturgen's way, boxing him in. Chakur Khan's horse was much slower, and although he was almost out of range, he fired an arrow that struck Eturgen's horse in the rear and brought the animal down. Then together, the two messengers captured Eturgen and brought him to Chinggis Khan. Chinggis said to them, Take Eturgen to Kassar. Let Kassar decide what to do with him. When they brought Eturgen to Kassar, without even speaking to him, Kassar cut off his head and cast his body aside. End quote. The two messengers informed Temujin that Onkan was completely deceived by their plan, had set up his golden tent, and was now feasting. If they rode through the night, they could take him unawares. Temujin agreed with the plan, and he sent Jurchidai and Archai Kassar to lead the vanguard. With the only enemy messenger silenced, this surprise attack was carried out without a hitch. Temujin's Mongols rode through the night and surrounded the Korayid camp. This was the main event, the one that had been brewing for a couple of years. Forget all the previous skirmishes, this was the battle that would define the future of the steppe. Would the established order prevail, and the likes of the Koreid, Neyman, and Merkit retain their independence? Or would they fall to Temujin's irresistible, centralised force? For such an important event, information about the battle is surprisingly sparse. The secret history states that it was a glorious, epic three-day battle, whilst Rashid al-Din states that it was an utter rout. When we compare it to the details surrounding the Battle of Kalakaljid Sands, it's kind of suspicious that a battle which apparently raged for three days is given no real coverage. But in both cases, Onkan was completely defeated, and Temujin was now the undisputed leader of the Koreid nation. And what happened to Togrul and his son Sengum? After the leader of the Jurgen clan, had performed a magnificent rearguard action. The pair had managed to escape the route, and yes, I am going with Rashid al-Din's take. They initially travelled west, hoping to find sanctuary with the Neyman. Travelling with only a small number of followers and the clothes on their back, they must have looked pretty pitiful. And as they went down the Nikon River, their party was intercepted by a group of Neyman warriors. Seeing that his father had been taken prisoner, Sengum abandoned him and fled south. He travelled across the Gobi Desert to Shishia, where he spent the time engaging in banditry, perhaps as a way to try and rebuild his strength. But before he could achieve anything, he was forced further west. On the border of Shishia and the Karakitai, he was apprehended by the local military governor and executed. His wife and child would remain as prisoners until Chinggis came through the region at a later date. As for Togril, the leader of the Neyman party refused to believe that the wretched man in front of him was the Khan of the Koreid, and just decided to execute him. The corpse was decapitated, and Ong Khan's head was taken to Taiyang Khan. He or his mother recognised the Koreid Khan, and treated it with all the respect due to a member of steppe nobility. Taiyang had the skull plated in silver, appropriate rites were performed over it, and the skull was displayed in a place of honour over the throne for a period of time. 
Ong Khan may have been an enemy of the Nayman at various points during his life, but he had in every way been an equal to the great Nayman leader Inancha Bilga Khan, the recently deceased father of Taiyang and Buyuruk. The secret history, however, adopts a more sensationalist take on these events. Quote, Seeing it really was Ong Khan's head, Gerbasu placed it on a white felt carpet and had her children's wives perform right for it. One girl offered it holy wine, another played the lute for it, and another placed before it a sacrificial bowl. As the head was being honoured this way, it laughed. It laughed, cried Tayang Khan, and he smashed the skull with his feet. The great warrior Kogsegu Sabrag spoke out at this, saying, First you order the head of a dead Khan cut off and brought to you. Then you smash it. These actions are wrong, all wrong. Hear how the dogs bark now. Do you hear them? There are bad things to come. End quote. Let's address the issue of multiple versions of events, because it keeps coming up. We can be reasonably certain that the secret history does not always represent the historic reality compared to Rashid al-Din, because the Jami al-Tarawik was written in consultation with official Mongol histories such as the Ultan Debta. If the secret history did represent it, we would surely expect to see closer agreement between the sources on the way events such as Togarul's death play out. Instead, we have to identify the source for what it is, a work of epic poetry and a propaganda tool. Therefore, embellishments and deviations from the reality of events have the dual purpose of entertaining the audience whilst conveying an officially sanctioned version of events. The secret history was also written much closer to the time when these events took place, probably not too long after 1234. So it likely represents the collective memory of those who took part in Temujin's rise to power, and thus conveys all the superstition and beliefs held by those people. It's also worth remembering that the secret history considers Togril and his family to be an extended part of the imperial family, and thus must be honoured as such. This means that the blame for his impoverished, dishonourable death has to be placed elsewhere. Temujin's treatment of the man who enabled the Koreid Khan's escape encapsulates the respect Ong Khan is given by the secret history. Once Togril and Sengum had departed from the route, Kadag the Brave surrendered to the Mongol leader, saying, quote, How can I allow them to capture my Khan and kill him before my own eyes? I couldn't desert my Khan, so I fought day after day, saying, Let him escape from here and save his own life. End quote. By allowing Togril to escape, Kadag had ensured that Temujin's honour remained intact, because someone else had killed his adopted father. It's interesting that this passage makes it clear, though, that Temujin would have killed Togril if he had captured him. The loyalty and honesty shown by Kadag saved the Jurgen leader's life. But despite this minor, feel-good story, there was a price that needed to be paid. The Koreid had betrayed Temujin. They had threatened his family. They had caused the death of his Ander Kuliadar, And he had just spent the past six months living in a marsh drinking mud water. So Kadag the Brave might have avoided death, but he could not expect to retain his status. Quote, Chinggis approved of what Kadag had done, saying, It's a great warrior who fights on, saying, I can't desert my Khan until he's escaped and saved his own life. This is the kind of man I would have in my army. So rather than execute Kadag, Chinggis said, 
in exchange for the life of Kuliadar, who died of the wounds he received fighting for me. Let Kadag the Brave and the hundred best Jurgen serve Kuliadar's wife and sons. End quote. These Jurgen men were reduced to Baal, essentially meaning that they were now servants bonded to the family of Kuliadar. They had lost their independence. The rest of the tribe was divided up among Temujin's followers, and the name Karayad was erased from the steppe. But before his tribe could settle down for the winter, Temujin had one last thing from Kalakaljid to resolve. He called the tribesmen Badai and Kishlig forward. If you remember, these two men had alerted Temujin to the treachery being planned by Sengum and Jamuga. Now they would be rewarded. Quote, Because of what Badai and Kishlig have done for me, I give them Onkan's golden tent just as it sits here, together with the golden pitchers and the servants to carry all the basins and bowls. Let the Onkojid clan of the Karayid become their personal guard. Let these two men be allowed to wear quivers and drink holy wine, and let them always be free men from now on, down to the seed of their seed. When we defeat our enemies and take our spoils, let them take whatever they want. It was the actions of Badai and Kishlik that saved my life. They brought me the protection of heaven, allowed me to defeat the Karayid people and sit on my throne. Long after we're gone, let whoever sits on my throne remember the great service these men have done and honour them down to the seed of their seed. End quote. And with that, the year 1203 was finished. It had been chaotic and everyone had been surprised. But now Temujin was pretty much the strongest individual leader on the steppe. The news of his victory spread fast and wide, and as winter drew in, tribes came from all over to submit to him. But not all were inclined to do so. Despite being divided between the brothers Taiyang and Buyaruk, the Naaman represented the final major obstacle to Temujin unifying the steppe. And whilst the Mongol leader spent the winter hunting and enjoying a rare moment of peace, Tayang Khan was preparing for war. Tayang Khan is portrayed by the secret history as a weak leader who was easily influenced by those around him. When it came to dealing with Temujin, he was persuaded that an attack was in the best interest of the Naaman, so he spent the winter looking for allies. Now, we've seen that most of the large Mongolian tribes had already been decimated, and he didn't get on with his brother so he was forced to turn to the groups who lived on the edge of the steppe. Throughout this podcast, I have mentioned the frontier zone, and until now it has been a largely abstract construct, a vague place where defeated steppe leader could go and recover his strength, and where interactions between the tribes and whoever ruled northern China took place. Well, there were a number of tribes who called this region home, often having formed some kind of agreement with the Chinese emperor. The Ongud tribe were one such group, and it was to this tribe Taiyang now turned for support. At this point in our story, the Ongud had been bound to the Jin for generations, having been allowed to settle outside of the borders of the empire as part of a military agreement that saw the Ongud provide men to defend the frontier. The territory they covered included the passes of northwestern Shanxi province and Inner Mongolia, where the Jin had constructed earthen walls to protect against raids. The walls of the early 13th century were nowhere near as elaborate or as extensive as the Great Wall, and it seems that the Jin had neglected many of these defensive structures, which had fallen into various degrees of disrepair. Let's be clear though, the Ongud were not internal migrants placed on the border by the Jin. They were a true tribe of the steppe, 
They first appear in Chinese annals from the 600s as the Shah Tuor Turks, and over the centuries they migrated east from Central Asia. The Ongud were well-known Nestorian Christians, and are recorded to be so by most European travellers of the period. Additionally, archaeological investigation in Inner Mongolia has uncovered a large number of grave markers which display Nestorian crosses and Syriac inscriptions. So when Taiyang approached the Ongud, suggesting an alliance against Temujin, he must have been fairly confident in receiving a positive response. The Neyman and Ongud shared both a religion and a close cultural heritage, whilst Temujin's position in central and eastern Mongolia could easily be presented as a threat to the frontier. Quote, They say that in this area there has recently appeared a monarch by which he meant Genghis Khan. I know for certain that in the sky the sun and the moon are two, but on the earth how can there be two monarchs in one kingdom? You be my right hand and support me with troops so that we can take his sable. End quote. His approach failed to account for two things. The first, that the Ongud were still very loyal to the Jin, and the interests of the tribe matched those of their overlord, namely that there was little benefit in supporting the apparently stronger force. The second factor was that the Ongud leader, Alakush Teginkuri, had already established friendly relations with Temujin, possibly as a result of the Mongol leader's interactions with the Jin in the 1190s. Alakush's response to Taiyang is simply recorded by the secret history as being, I can't be your right hand. To Temujin though, he sent a messenger informing the Mongol Khan of the impending Neyman attack. Temujin received the news whilst he was leading a hunting party, which he immediately cancelled, and then assembled a council of his own closest advisers to discuss the issue. Quote, What can we do? someone asked, while others spoke up saying, Our geldings are too lean from the hunting to fight. What should we do? At this, Prince Odchigin replied to them, What good is it to say the geldings are lean? After what the Neyman have said about us, how can we even sit here and talk? Then Prince Belgatai stood up and added, If a man with breath still in him lets an enemy take his quiver, what's the point of having lived at all? When a man dies, his quiver and bow should be buried next to his bones. That's the right way to die. The Neyman boast how they, the most numerous people, are also the most powerful. If we use this boast as a just provocation to attack them by surprise, to find them still in their camp and take the quivers off their backs, won't that give the advantage to us? Having heard these insults and threats from the Neyman, how can we continue to sit here and talk? Let's attack them at once. End quote. Temujin approved of Belgatai's speech and immediately moved his tribe to the Keltagai cliffs on the Kalka River, where once more it began to prepare for war. And with war again brewing, we shall leave Temujin into the release of episode 3.10, which will be coming at the end of September. In the meantime, if you are looking for more information about the events of this episode or the Mongol Empire in general, head over to mongolempirepodcast.com to find a list of the sources used in this and all the previous episodes, along with family trees, biographies, and a map of the five main tribes on the Mongolian steppe. If you want to give me feedback, whether that's criticism, corrections, or just say hi, you can contact me by email, Cory. That's C-O-R-E-Y at mongolempirepodcast.com 
or you can find me on Twitter at Mongol Empire Pod. Otherwise, until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.